I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? I'm doing great. I'm not as great as you from the sounds of things. I don't think I have nearly your energy, but I'm doing well. Things are great. Man, I'm excited to talk about this week's episode. It's going to be fun for me, not so much for you. But last week, it was fun for everybody. We talked about Rowdy Roddy Piper, and it was a great moment in 83 weeks. I think it was one of our more interesting episodes because... You know, you have a hardened facade sometimes and you let the audience in on the real you at the end of last week's show. And I thought it was a good moment. What was the feedback you got from our Roddy Piper episode? I got a lot of great feedback. Roddy had so many fans and, and still does. And I think most people that listen to that podcast, um, certainly picked up on you know, towards the end, it got a little emotional, but it, it got emotional because Roddy was such a loved guy, not just by me, but by everybody. He just, he was a magic kind of a, uh, of a dude. And anybody that ever worked with him and, and was close to him just had a different kind of vibe for him. And that's the feedback that I got from a lot of fans. Just, they all really appreciated the episode and heard a little bit uh, about Roddy, at least at WCW that they had never heard before which, you know, that always makes me feel good. You know, if we can do these shows and people can learn a little bit, even if it's just a little bit of insight or, or a story, or just a brief look at some of the people they thought they knew everything there was to know about, then I think we've done a good job. And I think that was pretty much the, the, the majority of the responses that I got last week. Here we go. October <laughs> 25th, man, MGM Grand, Las Vegas. The thing does a 0.78 buy rate, which is like a $3.48 million gross for WCW. And there's so much meat on the bone here. But first, let's start with why was MGM Grand the right place to host all of these Halloween Havocs? It does feel like the home for Havoc. Yeah, I mean, that was really Zane Bresloff who had the relationship at uh, MGM Grand. Um, he introduced me to, to management there and we, we pitched, they bought and it just worked. It just was a magic venue for us. Uh, we were at the top of our game, you know, so we were, we were a great draw, not only locally, but people that are coming through Las Vegas because the, the, the population of Las Vegas, especially down on the strip kind of turns over every three days. So we could not only, you know, we were not only a good draw for the local market, the people that live there full time. But we were so hot that people that were, you know, in Vegas from out of town would come in and check out the show or plan to be at Halloween Havoc. So it just, it just worked. And the Betty Boop Bar, oh, I used to have so much fun at the Betty Boop Bar. If you ever go to the MGM Grand and, and you, 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 you're playing the machines or you're there for a concert, whatever the case may be, stop on over to the Betty Boop Bar, have a Coors Light, and think of yours truly because I love that bar. We had so much fun there. Is it now called the lobby bar? You know, it might be, I haven't been to the MGM grand now in probably 15 years. So I'm sure it's changed by now, but it used to be the Betty boot bar. And the only bar that was better than a Betty boot bar 
was Cleopatra's barge at Caesar's. Cleopatra, have you been there? Do you remember that? No. Okay. First of all, it was right across the hall from one of the best sushi bars at that time in Las Vegas. It was an outstanding sushi bar. So we had our sushi, and you could literally walk across the aisle, and boom, you're in Cleopatra's barge. Now, it was a little bar. You it's know, still little- there, by the way. I just looked it up. It's still there. Well, a lot of, a lot of fun times went down in that bar. Trust me. But Did you, they had uh, a little, little rock and roll band, you know, off to the side. But the best part about Cleopatra's Barge was the people watching because you could see it's right there in the center of, of the MGM Grand. So you're seeing all the traffic at the you know main floor of the casino going by. And that's always fun. But the best part of it was watching the hookers work the room. <laughs> because because <laughs> Honestly, you'd go to Cleopatra's Barge and it was deader than dead up until about 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night. And then all of a sudden it started really jamming up with people. And you'd, you'd look over and you'd notice all of a sudden there's these you know really attractive women sitting by themselves alone at the bar. Now, believe it or not, I know this is going to sound you know like bullshit, but it's true. I didn't realize – at first, when I first started hanging out there, that they were hookers. I just thought, wow, this place really attracts some fine talent. And then you'd see, you know, guys come in and obviously inebriated. And then it became pretty obvious that these girls were working over, you know, the guys that would come in drunk and sit at the bar or vice versa. And you'd, you'd watch these girls take the guys up to the room. And we used to, you know, time it. We do over and under. Is it going to take 15 minutes? Is it going to take a half hour? Is it going to take an hour? And we used to sit at the bar and bet with each other how long it was going to take for that girl to make it down back down to the bar. What was the what was the record? Oh God, I don't. I can't remember. It's probably 20 minutes or a half hour. But the one that I do remember in particular is the, the guy sat down. He was really loud. He was really obnoxious, wearing a Rolex, all kinds of jewelry hanging off of him, probably wearing a $1,200 suit. But he was re- he was drunk off his ass. And the girl came back after they disappeared for 20 minutes or half hour or whatever it was. The girl came back to the bar for a minute. I think she might have had to pay her tab or do whatever she had to do. She came back for and she disappeared. And we thought, wow, she must have killed that poor guy. He came staggering down to the bar about 15 minutes after she left. And he was all disheveled, you know, his shirt. And he looked like he walked off the cover of GQ when he walked up to the room. As drunk as he was, he still looked good, right? He comes, he came down and his shirt's hanging out. His sport, sport coat was... It looked like it had been, you know, laying on the floor. His shirt was un- unbuttoned down to the middle of his chest. He was a wreck look. <laughs> and he started complaining to the bartender because the hooker took all his shit. <laughs> she stole his watch, his wallet, his jewelry. So there you go. There's your lesson. And that's watch, the, out for, watch out for hookers. And that's the first time you met Bruce Pritchard. So <laughs> I had a happy no, ending. <laughs> oh, nice. Very nice. So let's talk about, um, I mean, I really want to talk more about the hookers, but I guess that's a different podcast. Let's keep it going for now and talk about, and I guess we should mention we've covered fall brawl 98, which was the most recent pay-per-view before this. So we're going to sort of fill in the gaps coming out of fall brawl. You guys have a three week win streak over raw in the Monday night war, but that ends on September 21st, where nitro has a show that Meltzer described as atrocious. And you can probably guess why. Tell me exactly how you're feeling about the warrior experiment as you head in 
to this big main event, this big super show that you've been building towards Halloween Havoc? Look, I think we were all, by this point, we're all kind of disappointed and a little nervous. You know, and I, I again, you guys know that have been listening to this podcast. I'm not going to, I'm going to try not to bury or be too critical of anybody, especially people that um, are, aren't here to defend themselves. And I have a lot of respect for Jim. Um, he was a passionate guy. He really, really cared sometimes too much about his character. Um, but that being said, I think it was pretty obvious, you know, we thought mistakenly so that we were going to be able to recapture the Hogan warrior magic. And it just wasn't there from the get go. The audience just wasn't into it to the level that I think we all hoped they would be. Number one, it was different than Hogan and Savage. Hogan and Savage had that magic. Uh, and, and were able to retain it. Hogan and Warrior didn't. And that was obvious from the very beginning. It was also obvious from the very beginning that Jim was a free spirit. <laughs> there you go. He'd appreciate that. He was a free spirit. He was hard to manage. He was hard to produce. He he had his own way of doing things. And no matter how – and it's not like he wouldn't listen. It's not like he was – stubborn and was going to only do it the way he wanted to do it. There was no, there was no adversity, you know, in, in any of our discussions. It's just that once that red light went on, he just, he, he flipped a switch in his head and he became this character that he saw in his head. And oftentimes it just didn't, it didn't come off that well. Well, let's talk about one of the things you guys are trying to do to really hype the interest that's September 21st Nitro, which goes down at the Fleet Center in Boston, which I should remind you just a few months prior to this held WrestleMania 14 to open the show. We've got a skit with Scott Hall showing up, acting loaded, Doug Dillinger's trying to get him to sober up. And then they go to the ring and it's filled with smoke and the disciples there when the ring clears, but he's asleep on the mat. Hogan and the NWO black and white are here to try to recapture the prisoner but the smoke fills the ring again. And then when it's gone, so is the cycle. And then we see warrior in the rafters with this blow up doll dressed like the disciple. A lot of drugs yeah. going on here. Is this Kevin Sullivan? What the fuck is this? I don't even know who to pin it on brother. That was, that was a, that was a collective cluster. Fuck. That was it's, it's on me at the end of the day. It's always on me because I could have and should have put an end to that nonsense, and I didn't. So no matter who else was involved, that goes down on my resume. Um, that being said, I think we were trying anything to make chicken salad out of chicken shit, and it just kept getting worse. <laughs> you know, sometimes you just got to throw the, throw the chicken shit and the chicken salad out and start over. And we didn't do that. We just kept digging. One of my favorite things that nobody talks about is there's a scene where Hogan goes to his dressing room and most everybody, when we say Hogan warrior dressing room, thinks of the mirror spot and we'll get there, but I love <laughs> he goes and not only is, is it spray painted everywhere with his own insignia. But there's small fires everywhere, which is just hilarious to me that this is really happening. Chat me up though, about 
the mirror spot. Whose idea was that? How it shot? Does does Hogan have to like at some point look around like what the fuck are we doing? Or is he all in? No, he was all in. And again, you know, look with Warrior. Let, let's you know, I just got to be honest about this stuff. Everybody knew, including Hulk and Warrior, that they weren't going to go out there and have, you know, an Eddie Guerrero, you know, Chris Benoit type of match, right? I mean, they were both limited, and and we all knew that. They knew that. There was no misconceptions about what they're able to do in the ring, and so much of what made those characters work, as well as others, quite honestly, is the mystique. Um, and we were just trying so hard to find a way to reignite that mystique be- between those two. And it just fucking failed. <laughs> I don't know what else to say. I'm not proud of it. You know, I, I, I wished, I wish today that we were talking about how phenomenal the setup was for this, this particular match and how great, you know, Warrior and Hogan, you know, part two or part four or whatever part it was, uh, worked out in WCW, but it didn't, you know, it just, it didn't, but all of those, the smoke and the mirrors and the reflection and, you know, the smoke in the ring and all that voodoo shit was just our way collectively, um, of, of trying to, trying to get it over. It's interesting to me. And, and I say this as your buddy that you can really defend this but when i just bring up the dungeon of doom it gives you the fucking hives what's the difference between the two piles of nonsense well let's start out you know factually i'm not defending it i'm I'm admitting (laughs) i'm admitting it was a fucking mess i you know i guess i could throw myself out a window to prove it but i'm not defending it number one and number two, I think the difference between this and Dungeon of Doom is this was more or less a, a, a short-term program. Um, Dungeon of Doom was around for a long time. That was pain that we kept experiencing over an extended <laughs> over an extended period of time versus you know a twenty-four hour headache. It's just fun to me that I get to do this two weeks after you are just browbeating Vince Russo about how horrible it is. And now it's my turn to do it for you. So we're equal opportunity over this show. Uh, I do want to mention that this is a great comment from Meltzer that I didn't know until I started doing my research. Uh, the lights went out and warrior was supposed to do a run in to save Luger and Conan, except they never got in the ring to begin with due to the massive miscommunication. And the show just went off the air three minutes early without warrior doing anything. Do you recall this miscommunication and is this a problem with gorilla or or I guess, as you guys called it, maybe the go position, chat me up. What the fuck happened here where the show just goes off the air because nobody's in position. I'm sorry. I'm a little confused. What show are we talking about? It's this this same nitro. I, I know Halloween havoc goes off the air early too. I didn't mean to foreshadow there, but the fleet center nitro on September 21st, the same one where the you know, they've got the blow up doll in the, in the rafters painted up like the cycle, blah, blah, blah. Allegedly warrior supposed to do a run in, but doesn't because he's waiting according to the observer for Luger and Conan to be in the ring, but they're not. 
No, that was just me wanting to end the show early. I was so tired of it. I wanted to go off the air. I called an audible. I said, save me from this shit. I can't take it. 20 years from now, some guy from Huntsville is going to be busting my balls over the show, and I don't want to give him another three minutes to do it with. So I just pulled the plug. Now, fuck, I don't know. I don't remember. I'm sure there was bad communication. Um, who wait, knows? Wait. It's a live show. Shit happens. Felt like 83 weeks that the Ultimate Warrior was ruining WCW. Um, Meltzer would write, it's no secret within the company that warrior is dying. And the realization that unless something is done quickly, he's taking Hogan down with him. They still may do a good buy rate for the next pay-per-view, although it's going down and not escalating with every bit of hype added to the mix. Did you feel like with every passing segment that instead of building more buys, you were actually potentially hurting it once you saw the way it was pulled off? Yeah, we did. And I mean, for me, it was really his, that, that first interview, you know, that he did. We've talked about that before. I, I knew in that moment that we were in trouble. I just didn't know how, how deep a trouble we were in. Again, we, we had hoped, I had hoped that we were going to be able to try to find a way to, to smoke and mirrors, no pun intended, our way out of it. But yeah, it, it became more obvious each and every attempt to try to recreate that magic that we were getting farther and farther away from it. I need to correct earlier. I said that, uh, the miscue on timing happened on the 21st. It actually happened on the 28th. I do want to mention that, uh, Meltzer was pretty adamant that you guys behind the scenes made a decision that warrior in front of a live crowd with a live mic is a fucking bad idea. So you started to lean more towards the, Hey, let's pre-tape some more of your interviews. Was that accurate? Yes. I mean, uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and it wasn't a secret. It wasn't like Dave stumbled ac- across, you know, an internal company memo that was only supposed to be seen <laughs> between a few people. It was no secret. It just wasn't working. Talk to me a little bit about, I think it was called nitro plus. Uh, there was this idea where you guys were doing sort of cutaways in the middle of the show and you could watch continuous nitro action. I think this was on direct TV and you could sort of see what happened during the commercials for like two bucks or four bucks, something like that. Do you remember how that deal came together? Yeah, that I think, believe that was a Mike Weber, Sharon Sadello type of a deal. They would have been the ones that would have been in charge of the relationship with direct TV. I'm pretty sure it was Mike Weber. Um, put that deal together. And there was always, you know, for a long time, and it probably exists to this day, even in, in WWE, you know, your commercial breaks are a real tough time. Um, because your audience, your live audience, you know, the match, if you're in the middle of a match, the match has to slow down during a commercial break. The enthusiasm in the audience, you know, dies during the commercial break. That's one of the reasons that we created the Nitro Girls is to try to keep the audience engaged. Um, there was always this challenge of what do we do during the commercial breaks so that we just don't die. And that was an attempt, I believe, of trying to to maximize that opportunity and try to figure out a way to do, to, to have something going on during the commercial breaks that made sense, uh, business wise that allowed us to try to keep the energy up in the ring. And it, it, it didn't work in the long run. It didn't work, but you know, we, we tried, it was not a bad idea. I think the idea was a solid idea. It just didn't really work. 
One of the other things that Meltzer reported here is that it's considered almost a definite that the actor Jackie Chan will face Ernest Miller on a pay-per-view later this year. Although it's not clear which one world war three is the one that's most likely. How close did you get to a Jackie Chan, Ernest Miller match? Not very close at all. There were a couple conversations, but they were very, um, very early stage type of conversations. There was never a serious discussion or negotiation. Let's talk about where business is. You know, it's easy to sort of uh, make fun and say, oh, look how bad this was. But really year over year in 97 was a banner year for WCW, but you're crushing it in 1998. Your average attendance in October of 97 is 3,944 fans. We're up 91% here to 7,559 fans. The gate is up over a hundred percent. You go from 79 grand a show to 159 grand a show and ratings are up 54% too, going from a 2.2 to a 3.4. You gotta be feeling it here, man. Not really. You know, what's ironic about that. And we've talked, we've touched on this before, um, <clears throat> prepared to go into the weeds. Uh, you know, it, it, it's easy to look at a show like October 98, you know, Halloween Havoc in October of 98. And you look at the statistics like you just read and you would think, you know, backstage, you know, in, in our offices, everybody's high-fiving each other. We're all on a roll. Everybody's happy. But it, the opposite was true by October of 1998. Things were be- – the wheels had, had already begun to fall off. There were so many challenges and changes and – directives from above my level, um, that it was beginning to have an adverse impact on all of us. Um, and I think, you know, it really started in July of 1998. By this time, it was really beginning to, to, I'll just speak for myself. I can't speak for everybody else, but it was really beginning to wear on me by this time. Looking for a great mother's day or father's day gift idea. I was, and I found it at paint your life. With Paint Your Life, you'll get a hand-painted portrait created to fit almost any budget, and it's a great gift idea for your mother, your father, or both. You see, Paint Your Life transforms your photos into a -a one-of-a-kind, beautiful hand-painted portrait created by professional artists. You upload anything you can imagine. You can even combine photos. You'll pick the artist, the medium. You can even customize the frame, and you can receive your painting in as little as two weeks. You can give the most meaningful gift you've ever given at paintyourlife.com. And there's no risk. If you don't love the final painting, your money's refunded, guaranteed. And right now is a limited time offer. Get 20% off your painting. That's right, 20% off and free shipping. To get this special offer, just text the word WEEKS to 87204. That's WEEKS to 87204. Text WEEKS to 87204. Paint your life. Celebrate the moments that matter most. Message and data rates may apply. See paintyourlife.com slash terms for details. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. Let's talk a little bit about, um, Scott Hall and Kevin Nash. They're a big part of the show here. Obviously two critical parts of the NWO. It was reported in the observer that Kevin Nash actually ran into Shane McMahon coming off an airplane 
And Shane mentioned that his dad was at another gate. So Nash goes over and has a brief conversation with Vince at the airport. And allegedly, according to the rumor and innuendo jokes, something like, Hey, save me a spot 29 months from now. Did you ever hear that story about Nash running into Vince? And when you, if you did, did you care one way or another? I never did hear it. I, I would, it wouldn't surprise me <laughs> knowing Kevin. Um, and I wouldn't blame him for doing it if he did. Um, uh, but I, I didn't hear it when it happened. I, I've heard it, you know, s- since then, obviously, but, uh, I didn't hear about it then. No, I do want to mention that there was an incident, I believe on October 12th, this is a nitro where Scott Hall, who a lot of people were speculating, even people who are his friend that he's impossible to deal with because he's got these substance issues and perhaps he should be sent home, but maybe in a weird way, because the gimmick is he's getting loaded that it's the lines are blurred and maybe you're okay with him. Obviously you're not endorsing him being in no condition to perform, but we've sort of opened Pandora's box a little bit with what we're showing on screen. He has three rental car crashes and lots of people are wondering like, why the fuck is he even still here? But allegedly on the 12th, he gets a little mouthy with buff Bagwell running down what buff did sort of shitting on his performance. And it was reported in the observer that buff slapped him twice. Although quote wrestlers describe them as working slaps, which was the extent of the altercation, which all witnesses said was provoked by hall. Do you remember the situation with Buff and Hall here and anything about this whole working slap situation? No, I've never heard that until until this moment. And I'm not saying it didn't happen, obviously, but I hadn't heard about it. I don't know where it happened or if it happened at a night show and I wasn't near it uh, or if it happened at a house show or I'm, I, mean, I don't know. But I, I had not heard that until just now. Can you speak to, you know, why, why Hall wasn't sent home? I mean, allegedly he's showing up in condition less than ideal and even crashes through rental cars. Clearly he's going through some stuff. Do you consider sending him home or are you hesitant because you've made it an angle? No, we were, it was a tough spot for all of us. It was a tough spot for Scott. Obviously, um, it was a tough spot for us. And, you know, we've, you and I have talked about this before, you know, that working his personal issue into a storyline is something that I, I do regret. People always ask me, you know, what's the one thing you really regret? My answer is almost always the same. I don't regret anything. I'm grateful for everything, the way it happened. I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you right now if, if I wouldn't have had the experience that I had. And it's, I, I just don't regret things in the past. I don't look at life that way. I, I've, I've made a lot of mistakes. I've learned from them or I've tried to. And you move on. There's not a lot of room in my life for regret. I do regret, however, um, not doing more to try to get Scott more help. Although I don't think it really would have mattered at that time, but it it was my responsibility. Nonetheless, I do really regret, um, using his issue, a personal issue, um, in storylines and and trying to blur the lines because, you know, everybody knew about Scott's issues. Kind of like we talked about with Ric Flair and I, everybody knew that we had a lot of personal issues or business issues that became personal. Um, and it was easy to use that, uh, to enhance a storyline. 
taking reality and fictionalizing it just a little bit to make it work inside of a wrestling ring was a formula that had worked for me from time to time. But it was poor judgment on my part to try to do that here. Um, There's no other way to say it. No, well, I I mean, I appreciate your candor. Um, Let's talk about Halloween Havoc. Let's just get to it. I guess I should mention on the go home episode of Nitro on our way to Halloween Havoc. This is one of the first times that we see Horace Hogan show up. Uh, He is introduced here, of course, as the nephew of Hulk Hogan, telling him how much he loves him. And then he, of course... Uh, gets attacked and, uh, the NWO <laughs> beats him up. Warrior comes in for the save giant choke slams him. Hulk spray paints him. Uh, we're out of here. Uh, nitro does a 4.36 that night. Raw does a 5.01. So after that winning streak coming out of fall brawl, as we're headed towards arguably the second biggest pay-per-view of the year for WCW, they're not in a winning position. But what I wanted to ask about was Horace Hogan. How did this come to be? Um, well, he, you know, he legitimately was Hulk's nephew and he was working in Florida. I think he had worked a little bit in ECW. I may be mistaken about that. Get my, if my recollection is right, he had worked around a little bit and, you know, Hulk wanted to give him a shot. He's family. You know, I've said this before. Hulk is loyal to a fault. And sometimes, it gets in the way. And in this case, it got in the way. Horace really wasn't. He shouldn't. Look, it's a little bit like we did with David Flair. It was the same mistake we made with David, right? It's one thing to give somebody a shot in an opportunity. It's another thing to thrust them right in the middle of some of the hottest stuff that you've got going on. That's That, that almost ensures someone's failure. And it was really unfair to Horace in retrospect, it's easy to have 2020 hindsight, but it would have been a lot more fair to Horace to, to let him work on his own and build up his own audience and build up his own character, um, away from Hulk for a period of time and then try to create an angle between him and Hulk using the family thing, but to thrust him right into it in this cluster, um, pretty much ensured that you know, he's going to go down as an, as an asterisk in the history of wrestling. Let's talk about Halloween havoc, man. Nobody wants to be related to that horse shit. Uh, it sold <laughs> out way, way, way in advance. 10,663 fans paying over $328,000 at the gate. And I know you watched this show for the first time in a long time this week. Talk to me about Chris Jericho retaining the WCW title against Raven in the opening match. This is, uh, a pretty loaded opening match here when you've got two big time names like this. Well, <laughs> I don't know if you try to be sarcastic or not, but, uh, you know, the match, it was for the world television title. Let's, you know, be honest about it. That title didn't really mean anything. It was a prop and not a very useful one at that. Uh, Chris, you know, it was interesting when I, when I watched it back, um, I was critical of myself, you know, of our, of our booking. Again, it wasn't just me, you know, booking these shows. There was a team of us doing it, but you know, to be fair, um, I, I thought it was a lackluster match because you've got two guys, you know, that were basically heels, you know, Raven was, you know, the farthest thing from a baby face you could probably find. And Chris Jericho was kind of walking that fine line, but he was more heelish than not. So there was just no real, 
good guy, bad guy formula there. And I know a lot of fans, you know, disagree with it or people that are really into wrestling don't think it's really necessary that there's a personal issue or that it's a heel and a baby face and, you know, that you can just go out there and have a great match and that's good enough. I, I've never subscribed to that. I still don't subscribe to that. Um, I think every great match, every great movie, every great television show has to have characters that you either really like or you really don't like in order for there to be anything close to a story or drama or anything that you really care about. And I think in this case, both both Chris – and this is not a knock on either one of them. They didn't book themselves in this match. But in in this particular case, I don't think the audience really got with that match because we didn't give them a reason to other than the world television title. So it was really just more of a – it was a high-quality filler – we knew that the match was going to be good. You couldn't put Chris Jericho in a match and not have it be good. Raven was capable of having a great match with, with Jericho. So it was again not not a reflection on either one of them, but there was just no reason to really care about the match. Allegedly, oh, I guess I should mention I enjoyed the match, but I was always a Raven fan, and I'm a super mark for Jericho in this era. I think Jericho in 1998 is just hard to beat. Some of my favorite stuff. Uh, it got three stars in the observer. They go seven minutes and 49 seconds. And they're sort of showing that Raven is not really ready to wrestle. He didn't know he was going to have a match here. At least that's the storyline. Uh, and, and it was written in a lot of the, uh, message boards and whatnot at the time that there was an idea where Raven was going to have a storyline where he would go on a long losing streak. And then his quote unquote mother would come out at some point and say that he had been lying about this bad childhood. Um, what can you tell us? I mean, we did see Raven's mom and some skits at his house where we found out that he was this child of privilege and he drove a Ferrari and made giant withdrawals at the bank with Canyon and whatnot. Whose idea was that? How did it all come together? Uh, was there a lot of thought put into it? It's always felt like when I bring up Raven to you on this show that he was almost just like, eh, whatever they wanted to do with him is fine. No, I mean, and I, I certainly don't want to give that impression. Um, I do remember that storyline being proposed. Uh, I'd be lying if I said I could remember who exactly came to me with it. It was probably Raven himself, um, or whoever he was working with at the time. I know him and Chris Canyon were close and they would pitch ideas together uh, from time to time. But I like the idea because it it took him out of that kind of punk grunge thing that – and I know you know a, a segment of the audience liked it. I'm not, I'm just, I don't really want to have to apologize for what I'm about to say too many more times in the rest of my – for the rest of my life. I just hated it. But I know some people dug it. You dug it. He, you were a fan of Raven. So I get that. But the mass audience, you know, the largest part of the audience just didn't get with it. It was a hard character to make money with. And I liked the idea because it made him out to be a liar and a fraud, which makes it easy to get heat. Eddie Guerrero, lie, cheat, and steal. And it, it, I liked the idea for that reason because it took him out of that just that grunge thing and it made him a fraud. And, and I think any time that you can, you know, really create a character that everybody knows is a liar and a cheat and will steal, you've got a lot more to work with in terms of telling future story than just somebody who's pissed off at life, which was, for the most part, you know, Raven's character. Well, and you've even said maybe Raven in real life, but 
We'll talk about that in our Raven episode, I'm sure. Next up, we've got Wrath working with Ming. Uh, they go four minutes and 23 seconds. Of course, Wrath gets the win with the meltdown. Uh, some boring chance here. And uh, the highlight, at least for Meltzer, is Wrath, even at his large size, does a flip body block off the apron. He gives it three quarters of a star. When I watched this back this week, feels a lot like filler to me. What say you, Eric? Yeah, it was filler. It wasn't a great match, you know, and I think anytime you put two big guys in there, especially following a match like, you know, with Jericho and Raven, I mean, there was a lot of action in that match. Uh, technically the, the audience may not have gotten into it, but as you pointed out, Dave gave it three or three and a half stars or whatever. And I think that's just another illustration. There are times when a match will get a one star match, but the audience really has fun with it and they enjoy it and they feel like they got their money's worth where someone who's critiquing that match and looking at it from a different point of view may think it's a dud. The audience really digs it. I think the Jericho and Raven match was another example of looking at a match from a technical point of view and go, wow, that's not a bad match. It was a pretty good match. And it was, but the audience didn't really care. And I think to have a match like that, opening up the show relatively hot in terms of action and then switch to, two really big guys who aren't great workers and don't complement each other very well. Um, not so smart. So you're going to put that one on the matchmaker who was, uh, you know, we've talked about the fact that Kevin Sullivan would help come up with a lot of the storylines and whatnot. Who's responsible for actually putting together the cards, like the placement of who's on first, who's on third, et cetera, et cetera. That would have been Kevin and his team, not, not Kevin by himself, but that would have been Kevin and his team. Next up, we've got Disco Inferno working with Juventud Guerrera, and the winner is going to earn a cruiserweight title match later in the show. They go nine minutes and 39 seconds. Meltzer dug it. He gave it three stars. Uh, I've always been a big Hoovy fan, uh, and I do look back now. I wasn't a super fan at the time, but I do look back now and appreciate Disco now more than I did then because he's at least entertaining. Uh, chat me up. What'd you think of the show, or what'd you think of this match all these years later? I thought it was pretty good, and I'm like you. You know, Disco gets knocked a lot, but he's always kind of encouraged that. He's always been that that, that character. That, you know, he's he's made fun of himself um, in a lot of cases. But if you look at him here, I think he was in his prime. He was in great shape physically, uh, and you know, it's easy to say, yeah, I was kind of dug him because he's you know he was entertaining. That's what it's all about, and I think he was very entertaining. I think. You know, he, he, he often gets, um, under, he's often underappreciated because, you know, he was such a goof, his character, he was designed to be that way. Um, and he did it very, very well. So maybe he did it too well. He's been carrying that stigma around with him ever since, but technically he was a very good wrestler in many respects and he was entertaining as hell. And I think in this case, him and Hoovy, I agree with you. I, I thought it was a great match. I was, I was really happy to see it. Next up, we see Scott Steiner come out and do an interview and out comes the giant and there's a challenge, uh, for Rick to do a tag team match. And since the NWO does what it wants, well, now we've got it. Uh, it's the tag titles on the line here. What'd you make of this, uh, matchmaking right in the middle of the pay-per-view? I like the idea of it. I like spontaneity. I've always said that it was part and parcel to the NWO character um, it, there was a lot of things that I liked about it. It didn't come off, uh, at all, 
but the idea, since you're asking about just spontaneously making a match, uh, I, I think that just adds to the live experience. It, it creates consciously or subconsciously in the minds of the viewer that you know you've got to watch this because you'll never you, you never know what's going to happen. Right? That's the magic of of live television. That's what makes live television appointment viewing. Ideally, is you've got to watch it because you never know what's going to happen and you don't want to miss it. So from a formula point of view, I really liked it from an execution point of view. It was pretty lame. I guess we should remind everybody the Steiners are not together here. So Scott Steiner's coming out with the giant to challenge Rick to a tag match, but it's two on one. And the stipulation is made that should Scott and giant lose Rick would finally get a singles match with Scott on the card. Next up, we've got Alex Wright working with Dave Finley. Alex gets the win after five minutes and nine seconds. Uh, the match had no heat, according to Dave Meltzer, and some boring chance, which was too bad because actually everything they did was solid and they worked really well together. That's directly from the Observer. He gave it a star and a quarter, and I guess we should mention that originally Davy Boy Smith was supposed to be Alex Wright's opponent, but that's changed day of, I assume, because of uh, Davy Boy Smith's back injury, right? Correct. What'd you think of the match here? Alex Wright, Dave Finley, again, in hindsight, feels a little bit like filler. It, it was uh, filler and it didn't come off great. You know, and it, I, I guess, you know, I hate to agree with Dave Meltzer, but it is unfortunate that the audience didn't appreciate that match more. And I guess it says a little bit about me and the kind of style of wrestling that I like when I watch that match back. Um, it, it made me appreciate fit. Now fit, you know, didn't look like your stereotypical, stereotypical, larger than life, you know, bronze statue type of character. He wasn't, you know, that big of a guy. He didn't, he didn't, you know, have a tremendous amount of charisma that could win you over. Um, but he was so solid and so believable in the ring that I just enjoyed watching him and I enjoyed watching it back. I think fit, you know, in, in his peak, you know, represented an era of wrestling that I think is important. And and if if I could have if I was running a wrestling company today and I could have a fit fit Finley when he was at his peak, even in 1998, I'd always have a place for him because I think that believable, just gut wrench, grind, dig in and make everything look believable style is a style of wrestling that's, you know, I think many people like. I, I know I do. But looking at it, I can see why the audience didn't. Again, um, placement was part of the problem. They're, look at the match they just followed. You know, they followed, a, a, you know, Juventud Guerrero and Disco. You know, that was a pretty exciting match. Now these guys who don't work that style have to follow that. So the audience is up. They see this great exhibition. They see these great athletes. They see this great match to get into. And now all of a sudden they're, they're watching a slower, different style of match with two guys that really don't have a story because of the, the injury situation. So it was just filler. And it's unfortunate for them. It's not their fault. Just it is what it is or it was what it was. Next up, Perry Saturn is working with Lodi. They go three minutes and 50 seconds. Uh, Saturn comes out with a, a chain mesh sort of top here that we would see with him on and off moving forward. And originally, uh, and this is according to the observer, Eddie Guerrero was supposed to face Saturn here, 
but he winds up having a transportation problem, AKA misses his flight and arrives late. So Lodi is the last minute replacement on a pay-per-view. They only go three minutes and 50 seconds. Perry gets the win with the death Valley driver quarter star. What do you remember about Eddie missing his flight here? Unfortunately, I, you know, I don't recall the details. Um, I guess it's possible that he just flat out missed his flight. It's possible that there were other issues, um, that I'm just not able to recall right now, but I'll just have to take it at face value. Uh, Eddie Guerrero was, you know, he did have some situations in his life. Uh, I think most famously, a lot of people remember that, um, he had a really horrible crash while he was under your employee and he was maybe inebriated during the time. Do you believe that there, this could have been the start of some of his substance issues and maybe that's why he missed the flight. Was he working shots in Mexico or would you just be speculating? Yeah, I'm not going there. I'm, there's no way I'm going there. Um, unless I have the facts in front of me and I could be honest about it and, and be fair to Eddie. Um, I'm just not going to go there. I don't know. Let's talk about Billy Kidman because you were not fair to him. You made him wrestle disco inferno here. And this is Disco's second match on the show. Uh, but at least he's successful Billy that is in retaining his WCW cruiserweight title. They go 10 minutes and 49 seconds. Uh, this match gets two and a quarter stars. Uh, and I guess the highlight of the show uh, up to this point is disco dancing the Macarena chat me up here. What'd you think when he watched it this time? I'm Alex Rodriguez and I'm Jason Kelly from Bloomberg. This is the deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. A little bit of disco goes a long it way. It really does. It's too much <laughs> disco. It's just, it was overkill. You know, it, and again, it wasn't his fault. We put him up to it. We let him do it. We encouraged it. We encouraged bad behavior. Um, but in retrospect, you know, a little bit of, a little bit of disco goes a long way. No doubt about it. I don't feel too bad about Billy though. I really don't. He had Tori. How bad could his life be? I love you for that. Uh, next up is maybe one of the funniest things on the show or one of the more fun shows. It's the Conan lowrider video from San Diego. The crowd is super into this. What do you remember about the Conan lowrider video? I dug it. You know, I, I'll say this about Conan and you know, we're, we're pretty good friends now. I mean, we don't chat like every week or anything like that, but I, I'm, I like Conan a lot. I have a lot of respect for him. Conan doesn't get a lot of credit or probably enough credit, I should say, for the vibe that he brought 
not only, you know, with, with, with the NWO when he was a part of it, um, he certainly did. I mean, he fit that. Ca- I mean, that's, he, I mean, he was right out of central casting. He was made for the NWO. He just brought that, that edge to it that made it so much more believable and relatable, good or bad. Um, but that Hispanic Southern California vibe that he brought to the show early on, I, I really dug it. He, he was, he was a great character. Tough to do business with, not going to deny that, but he was a great character. Speaking of great characters, Rick Steiner and Buff Bagwell are going to beat Scott Steiner and the giant to win the tag titles. And, uh, Meltzer would write this two match series had a great storyline, but very little in the way of wrestling. Uh, <laughs> giant is back to smoking cigarettes here. As he comes to the ring, Bagwell's running around crotch chopping. Uh, eventually, you know, what's coming a two-star match, but because Rick won, he gets a match with Scott Steiner and they go, uh, four minutes and 46 seconds. He gets to pin Scott. It's a no DQ mask or match, uh, but there is a mask here because this time, uh, Bagwell is in a suit wearing a Bill Clinton mask and hops the rail. Wow. There's lots of interaction here. Uh, Stevie Ray's here. Charles Robinson's here. What the fuck? What do you think of this? And Bagwell's running around at the end of the show yelling, where's Monica? Two stars is what it got the observer, which I can't believe with all the shenanigans that Dave was into, but he gave both matches two stars. He dug the storyline, very little wrestling. What'd you think 20 years later? It was a mess. It was a hot mess. And it's look, it's easy now to to discount the Bill Clinton, Monica Lewinsky thing. Cause we're all tired of hearing it and seeing it and knowing about it. And it's still being dug up to this day. And it's kind of like, please, but you got to, this is 1998. This is when the Monica Lewinsky thing was as hot as it could be. And, and Clinton. So is, you know, looking back at it now, it's like, Oh my God, I can't believe they did that. But at the time it was a pretty big damn deal. So I got to I got to cut the Bill Clinton mask and the Monica thing. I got to cut that some slack. You know, right now it makes me want to vomit. But back then, you know, it was timely. Um, the storyline to the match, at least there were good stakes. I've talked about this before. You can't have a good long-term storyline uh, between anybody if there aren't some stakes. If there's not a good guy, not a bad guy, somebody you're rooting for. If there's not something that's you know, it, 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 worth fighting for, meaning the stakes. Um, and then, you know, it was a personal issue between two brothers. So it was believable. It was a simple storyline, really. But I think the lack of action had a lot to do with just the chemistry in the ring. Uh, the fact that it was a tag match, a giant really, that wasn't, that was a horrible spot for the giant to be in. There was no way he was going to look good or be meaningful in any real way. Uh, it was poor use of him. Uh, and it was what it was. Glad we got through it. Glad we got through it. Oh my gosh. Uh, Scott Hall is out here next and he's working with his buddy, Kevin Nash. They go 14 minutes and 19 seconds. Scott ultimately gets the win by count out. Meltzer would write very slow paced match with a lot of brawling, went way too long, particularly for a show that was already going so long. Both guys initially got out of their foes, big finishes. And that explained because they knew each other so well. Nash uses a couple of jackknife power bombs to leave Hall laying and then just crotch chops him and walks out. 
to lose by countout, which Meltzer would say was weird. One star. Yeah, I guess if we go back, we should remind everybody that Hall turned on Nash at the Slam Array pay-per-view in May, uh, and that cost him the World Tag Team titles against Sting and the Giant. But what did you think of the finish here? Rather than pin him, because he's his buddy, he doesn't pin him. He technically loses, but he still leaves him laying. What say you? It's about as anticlimactic as you can be. And, you know, I understand the logic of that. I mean, I don't recall. I probably wasn't even in the room when they were discussing the finish. But I can imagine what it was. And there are times when even the best wrestlers and the most experienced ones kind of outsmart themselves by trying to think of where they're going next or what they're going to do next and creating a finish like this that allows you to continue the story. I get that. There are times when I've supported that. If, if the story is that important, but on a pay-per-view, you've got to give them a finish. You know, people, the, the pay-per-view, we've talked about this before, for the most part, not, not in every match, in every case, but for the most part, your pay-per-view should be the end of a story. It doesn't mean you can't start a new one, but you got to end the first one before you start the second one. And I think a finish like this, which is probably designed to leave the door open and continue their story in a way that, you know, allowed Kevin to say, yeah, but you never pin me or whatever the logic was behind that, that finish. Um, I understand it, but on a pay-per-view, it just sucks. It is, uh, it, it's weird that Scott Hall's even still here, you know, given the angle that they're using and his wife is, is burying him all over online and, and taking WCW to task saying that, you know, you guys are exploiting him and, uh, it's just not a good time for Scott Hall. And this storyline is just weird. Um, it is, it is. And, and, you know, add to that. We're, you know, we're, we're now we've got the NWO Wolfpack and the NWO and we're splitting things up and it's, it's becoming very diluted and hard to follow. Uh, the stories just aren't that strong at this point. I think creatively we really started suffering, um, a lot at this point. And I think it's reflective in a lot of the stuff that we're talking about. We just really were not on our game creatively. We had, we had lost a lot of the magic at this point. Next up, we've got Bret Hart and Sting working for the U.S. title. Bret Hart's going to retain here in 15 minutes and four seconds. Meltzer would write that it started slow and never really picked up. Ultimately, he only gave it a star and a quarter. Uh, there's lots of silliness here. Ref bumps, baseball bats, uh, stretcher jobs. What'd you think? Very disappointing match. You know, you think about the potential that that match could have had between Sting and Brett, just physically, you know, that should have been an exceptional match. And you would think with a guy like Brett and Sting that there would have been a finish or the match itself didn't need a lot of gimmicks. It was unnecessary. You know, use gimmicks when you gimmicks are camouflage. When you, when you, when you got guys that really can't work or you've got six guys in them in the ring at the same time or 20 or whatever the fuck it is, you know, you need as much camouflage as you can because it's never going to really look that great. Right. Um, but in this case you got, 
you know, Bret Hart, who was, if not at his peak, very near it. Um, he might've been a little past his peak physically, but not by much. He was certainly capable of going out there and having a, an amazing match. Sting was certainly capable of going out there and having an amazing match. So I just, for the life of me, I can't figure out why this match was laid out the way it was and why there was just such a cluster of goofy things going on. What's weird too, is it is a bit of a dream match because these guys were using each other's finishers. They're both, you know, flag bear, baby face franchise players for the WWF and then WCW. So it feels like this was can't miss, but an execution, it was really anything, but, and the, maybe some of the ref bump stuff hurts it a little bit. Um, because when the ref, I guess we should mention here, he accidentally see being sting accidentally, um, elbows, Billy Silverman, and that puts him down, but then Hart leg drops him. And then Sting superplexes Brett off the top and Hart actually lands on Silverman's legs a little bit. Eventually Sting goes for a Stinger splash, but overshoots Brett, hits his head on the metal and is knocked out. And then <laughs> Brett hits Sting with a baseball bat five times. And, uh, well, that's it. He's going to get the win and Sting has to leave on a, on a stretcher job here. And Meltzer were right. It was amazing how literally nobody in the crowd took the stretcher job seriously. Not even the lightest polite applause as he was being wheeled out as they have, uh, eventually took him out in an ambulance and that stretcher and ambulance stuff has just been done so much on both shows that nobody even reacts to it at this point. Do you think that, I mean, you can agree with that here, that it was probably just overdone at this point, the whole stretcher routine. Well, I think the stretcher routines, yeah. I mean, it was something that worked really well. If, and it, it, it still can if you do it once in a while. But that observation by Dave was absolutely on the money. And it had been done to death. Um, and it, it didn't have an effect. But I'll go back to one of the reasons it didn't have really any impact is because the match was flat. It was just a flat match. The people weren't into it. They were, weren't really cheering for anybody. It was just a match, and it wasn't a great one at that, you know. And you know, I love Steve Borden Sting. He he is a good friend of mine, and obviously, you know, Brett and I have the relationship we have. It is what it is. But at, at at a certain point, you know, I can take the blame, or I can shift a little bit over to Kevin Sullivan, or you know, the rest of the guys that were laying out the show, or whatever the matches. Um, we, but at the end of the day, it's the two guys in the ring. They have the ultimate call. They, we get, they get a, the, the, it, the match has to end up with the finish that we need from a, for a storyline. If, if the match has to end up with Brett winning, okay, then Brett's going to win. But how he wins, there's a lot of that that's up to the talent involved. It's not like you know Kevin Sullivan or Terry Taylor or Mike Graham or whoever was involved at this point you know, sat these guys down in a room and said, okay, you have to do this move in the corner. And Brett, you have to beat him with the baseball bat not three times, not four times, but five times, you know, that a lot of that is up to the talent. It's a talent's responsibility, especially two guys with the experience of Brett and sting. It's up to them to go out there and figure out how to have a match that gets us the finish we need, but do it, do it in an entertaining, believable way that gives us the most we can get out of that match. So some of the responsibility has to go to the talent involved. That would include Brett and Steve. 
Brett wrote this. I was baffled when Eric wasted Brett versus Hulk on a free match at nitro on September 28th, throwing away a guaranteed moneymaker that the fans had been waiting years for. The plan in my view was insane. He wanted me to turn babyface during an in-ring interview, challenge Hogan, then get injured and have sting take my place. When sting twisted Hogan into a scorpion Deathlock, I would limp back out and double cross sting by DDTing him head first into the mat, turning heel again. To turn me heel at this point was so stupid. It felt like sabotage. Now I know you're going to respond to that, but I can't help but wonder in hindsight, would it have been a better use of everyone had Brett wrestled Hogan at this pay-per-view instead of warrior? I don't know. Maybe. I mean, it's a hypothetical. Um, there were a lot of other things going on storyline wise and direction, um, I don't know. You know, I, that's why I don't like hypotheticals. You know, we can always look back and suggest that this would have been better. Or that would have been better. And perhaps, you know, perhaps it would have been better, but there was a lot of other things going on that made it not make sense at that point. Let's talk a little bit about, um, the actual bat itself. A bat is, <laughs> is very, um, identifiable with sting, but when Brett's using an on sting, and there's just so many times where, you know, we talked about this last week or two weeks ago on the Vince Russo episode where everybody has a bat, a foam bat. I mean, I know there is the suspension of disbelief with wrestling that we all sort of agree to, but when you've got dudes just whacking each other with a bat, this is really pushing it to the limit. Are they not? Yeah. The wheels, like I said, the, the wheels creatively were already falling off for us. And this was just, this is a perfect example you know, it, it, yes, yes, yes. And more. Yes. You know, if you're going to use a bat on somebody, make it once, make it believable, make it devastating. But you know, to, to, to blast somebody five times with a baseball bat, even if the baseball bat looked really real and it was a great prop, you know, taking a baseball bat to, to someone five times takes it out of the believability category. I mean, that's, that's murder, you know, that, that's, that's not, a, that's not a wrestling move. That's attempted murder. And it's just too much. And, and, and that's what this all reminds me of looking at, at this entire show. There was disco. It's just too much comedy, right? It was too much disco here in, in this particular match, just too many goofy things that happened during the match that were completely unnecessary and made the audience not care, including the finish where Bret Hart takes the baseball bat, which was Sting's gimmick. I get the logic. I really, really do. But then to overdo it by beating him to death with it kind of takes it out of the believability category. Next up your co-main event, Hulk Hogan. And the warrior go 14 minutes and 20 seconds after all these years, eight years and change Hulk finally gets his win back and warrior comes out to lots of warrior sucks chance, which, uh, tells you what the fans think before they even ring the bell. But unfortunately they did ring the bell negative five stars, perhaps the worst match in the history of wrestling pay-per-view. And the thing that sticks out to me the most without question is the flash paper. These guys have no idea what they're doing with each other, but eventually Hulk pulls a bag out of his trunks 
And Meltzer would write, it looked like some drug paraphernalia, but it was flash paper. Hogan was supposed to throw a fireball at Warrior, but after attempting to light the flash paper in what seemed like slow motion, he threw the fireball and nothing happened. No fireball. The whole place (laughs) groaned and poor Warrior, who didn't have a clue to begin with, now really didn't know what to do. This spot will be replayed for the next hundred years. Uh, somehow the paper then ignited for a split second, nearly burning Hogan's hand. And he was supposed to throw fire and somehow ring announcer, David Penzer was supposed to put his jacket on warrior and somehow warrior was supposed to make a comeback. Of course, none of that happens. We get a warrior comeback with three mistimed clotheslines. You come out, grab the ref. Horace hits warrior with the chair. Hogan gets the pin. And then incredibly Horace puts lighter fluid on warrior and they tease. They're going to set him on fire. Of course that doesn't happen. Negative five stars. Bischoff. What the fuck is this? I'll tell you what, that headlock I put on the referee was the hottest move of the whole fucking match. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. I mean, I had that, I had that headlock sucked in so tight. That was the most believable looking headlock I think I'd seen for that entire night. As a matter of fact, there was nobody that could deliver a headlock like I did on that referee. Yeah, this was again. God, there's just no defending it. I mean, it was horrible. It was horrible. It's just, it, I mean, I looked in the opening minutes of the, you know, the match. Once it finally got going, I was looking at Warriors clotheslines and it's like, oh my God, you know, it was so bad. And look, Hulk will be the first to admit he's, he's not, never was the greatest wrestler in the world. And he, he certainly wasn't at this point. He was one of the greatest characters in the history of the business and drew as much or more money than probably almost anybody in the, in the history of the business, but a great wrestler, he was not. Um, and to, and for, for Hulk to be able to go out there and have a great match or for warrior to go out and have a, well, let's not talk about a great match. Let's put that aside to go out there and really deliver a physical match. You've got to be out there with somebody that compliments you. Hulk Hogan and Ric Flair were able to have a great match because Ric Flair was able to carry Hulk Hogan and work a style that, that made Hogan, who is, you know, six foot seven, 350 pounds or 300 pounds look really good here. You've got two guys that are not really capable of making each other look good. And then they both look bad in the process. And, they knew that. I mean, they were well aware of their limitations. But again, here we come with gimmicks, camouflage, and stupid gimmicks at that. And ones that are hard to manage and not 100% under your control, which makes it even dumber. Um, there was just so many things that were going against this match. And it's, it's really, you know, you, you can't blame Warrior. He was what he was. He was where he was at at this stage of his career. You can't really blame Hulk. Um, everybody went into it with the best of intentions. You know, Hulk and Warrior didn't, you know, get excited about, you know, the idea of coming out in, you know, October of 1998 and having one of the worst matches in history, according to Dave Meltzer. It wasn't their goal. They really thought that they could recapture the magic. But it was obvious that they didn't and they couldn't. And a lot of it has to do with just the limitations of the guys. Warrior was hard for Hulk to work with. Warrior was hard for a lot of people to work with, particularly at this stage. Um, It was what it was and it was bad. 
Is this the worst Hogan match you remember seeing? Yeah, I would say I would have to say so. I mean, I think it's the worst match in WCW history. Would you disagree with that? No, I'd have to do a little research on that. (laughs) I think there could be some competition. I feel like we should mention though, that this is a phenomenal number for you guys. So as much as we're mocking this and it was a terribly executed match, the revenue was there. Yeah, but here's, this is, you know, and I've tried to explain this and I know sometimes I'm better at articulating my thoughts than others, but just because an event like this does a lot of revenue, that's not necessarily good news. I mean, that's like having, you know, a grand opening in a restaurant and your restaurant is packed and you got people there and everybody's raving how great the food is. And then, you know, the the very next morning you find out that everybody that ate in your restaurant, you know, has got E. coli. You know, it, it really doesn't matter. You know, the, the fact is, yeah, a lot of people came, you know, we had a great turnout at the live gate. I think we were sold out 10,000, some odd people. Um, we got a decent pay-per-view number. That's the great news. The bad news is a lot of people came and saw a mediocre pay-per-view and that's not good because the next pay-per-view is going to suffer. Not the one you just did, but the next one is going to suffer. So just because it did a lot of, it did a great number or we sold out or it generated a lot of money in, in pay-per-view, that's not necessarily great news if people left feeling bad about the product. Warrior was pretty vocal about his time in WCW before he passed away. Of course, we lost him, I guess, in 2014. Uh, did you have any contact with Warrior once his WCW run was up? No. He, no, uh, no it, it wasn't because I, I mean, I, I didn't, there was no heat. I mean, I mean, maybe there was on his part. I don't know what he said, but, um, from my point of view, you know, we tried it. It didn't work, uh, for a lot of reasons that were pretty obvious to me and most of the other people. So it, you know, you move on, you know, blame people and, you know, be angry about it. You, you tried it. It didn't work. Move on is kind of the way I looked at it. He got a big pop the next night in Phoenix on Nitro, which is his hometown. And he winds up cleaning house on Hogan, Giant, and and Vincent. And that's pretty much the end. And he had an interesting relationship with Hulk, to say the least. And at different times, he said that him being brought back to WCW just so Hogan could get his win back, those are his words, uh, was sick and insecure. And he said about a week before Havoc, he flew to Tampa and stayed at Hogan's house one night. And he said it was an eye-open experience about how insecure Hulk Hogan was. And it was disheartening to see someone who had done so much and had this incredible power to sort of spread these positive messages, but he was sort of self-centered and he compared you to Vince McMahon. He said, McMahon is a leader, a planner, and he follows through with his plan. Bischoff always used the word spontaneity. Spontaneity is one thing. But showing up an hour and a half before TV when millions of dollars were on the line, that's lunacy. I think he let anxiety get to him. And he says in WCW backstage, everybody just did what they wanted because there was no leadership, no direction. And he said that when he compared his two runs with the WCW and the WWF, it was brutal. And, um, this six month contract he's under finishes up in, I guess, December of 1998. Uh, but he just could not wait to just bury anything and everything about his WCW run. 
Uh, and he went into great detail about things like the trap door and, um, that you guys didn't communicate that to other wrestlers and that he never really had an opportunity to spend much time with sting. And then he thought Goldberg was being manipulated a lot, uh, by, you know, Hall and Nash and Hulk Hogan. When you see all of this negativity coming from him after the fact, is it in one ear and out the other? What, what do you think when you see a guy sort of just rant and rave like that? You know, I, this is the first time I'm hearing this, honestly. I, 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 I don't know where he said that or if he's, I, I don't know where he said it. You know, if it was in video form or if it was in a dirt sheet or I don't know where he said it. Um, and you know, I'm, <laughs> the only way I can respond is I think it's human nature when you're disappointed to lash out at other people. Right. It's, it's, it's we're all, we, we've all done it. I've done it. Um, Jim's not here to defend himself. So I'm not going to be critical of what he did or what he said, or, or really, I'm not really able to respond to it too much. You know, I, I'll go back to what I said when, when you started asking me about this for me personally, um, whether I would have known all this negative stuff that he would have said or not, I would have probably felt the same way. We tried it. It didn't work. Um, we did our best move on. Uh, I can't react to what he said any better than that under the circumstances. Sure. I guess we should mention that, um, warrior tore his bicep at fall brawl. And I know we mentioned that before, but he's working this match, not in the best shape because of that. And he's working out with a rubber hose, like six or seven hours a day, just to be presentable and get through the Halloween havoc match. But he didn't feel like he had the support of everybody else. He says it felt like everybody was sort of just trying to do their own thing rather than working together. And people were content to sort of abandon his storyline. He thought the ultimate warrior was a character that could have been pulled off, but he didn't have it down to an exact science when he first came out. And maybe because it wasn't awesome, people just sort of did their own thing. He says, it's going to take more to work than just going out there and grabbing your crotch and trying to be degenerately cool. That's not going to work. And ultimately WCW doesn't call again. And that's it. He's out of here. As you would guess, it ran away with the wrestling observer reader poll for the worst match of the night. Um, but we're not done. That's not the main event. Although it is what everybody talks about until we get to this. Bill Goldberg retains his world heavyweight title over diamond Dallas page in 10 minutes and 28 seconds. But the trouble is a lot of people didn't see it. It gets three and a quarter stars. Lots of people thought this was a much better match than what all the expectations would have been just because Goldberg up, up until this point had been working really, really short matches. And here he does a 10 minute match and it's three and a quarter stars. So a very solid match. We'll talk about the shenanigans with the pay-per-view and being on air and satellite time and all that in a bit. what did you think of the match when you watched it this week, Eric? I thought it was great. I thought it was great. And, and, and kudos to both Bill and, and page, because you know, those two guys talked this through to death. I mean, Goldberg would have had no choice. I mean, I'm sure he would have wanted to anyway. 
because um, he he was you know he's a perfectionist. He put a lot of pressure on himself, and he knew at this stage of his career where he was at that he had to go out there and demonstrate that he could do more than just spear guys and jackhammer them. He he knew the audience was wanting to see more out of him, so he had the desire. He had certainly the skill, the athleticism, the ability. Um, but Paige, I have to give a lot of credit to Paige for helping him have a great match. Uh, those those two danced together very, very well. I thought they both looked great. It was believable. You know, even some of the camera work where, you know, Bill was, you know, had a submission hold that he was able to roll into in the corner. And you could hear, you know, Paige really selling it the way he should sell it. Uh, I, there was a lot I liked about it. There's a lot of good stuff here. I would encourage you, if you're going to go back and watch this show, just watch the last two matches, just so you can see the best of both worlds here for WCW 1998. I may be the best of times and the worst of times. I guess we should mention here that DDP has been, I don't know, notorious. Maybe he's developed a rep for being notorious for scripting everything in a match. Uh, and Goldberg would say, and maybe a little tongue in cheek here, that DDP handed him 32 pages for this match, which included Goldberg spearing him 14 times. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. God help me. <laughs> I mean, that's more than you do on blue chew. I'm just saying, um, DDP said he got Goldberg to the power plant with him to work on the match. And these guys really worked through all of it, spent a lot of time on it. But in the actual match itself, they're talking about the way the spears would be done and missing a spear and then finally landing one. But when they do Goldberg does it so hard that he actually drills himself on the mat head first and in the process knocks himself out. So when DDP (laughs) delivers the diamond cutter, the crowd explodes because at this point, the diamond cutter is the most over move in wrestling. Is that fair to say? If you ask Paige, it is for sure. Well, what else was more over? I'm being serious. Like he had done a great job getting it over to a point where people knew that was the end. That was like the modern day DDT. Yeah, I'll give you that. I'll I'll give you, I'll give him that. So eventually Paige makes, I would, I would say the spear and a jackhammer arguably was more over. Okay. I would, I would go diamond cutter just because he had been establishing it for a few years prior to that, but that's just me. Maybe I'm an idiot. Um, DDP waits like 10 seconds or longer to cover Goldberg after the diamond cutter as to not kill the diamond cutter, because at this point it has been the end every time. And so that's what they're teasing with this. And it's a great story, but the word that they had agreed on is that Goldberg's going to kick out at like two and nine tenths, right at the very last possible minute. But because Goldberg is knocked out. He just instinctively kicks out at two and TDP's pretty pissed about it, but this is an interesting match and it's put together very well. I really enjoyed it because you've got two baby faces and historically, I don't really like that. I want a good guy. I want a bad guy. Call me old fashioned, but a baby face match sometimes to me is like, eh, but here I thought they did a great job with it. They told a good story and I did not have high expectations going into this. I didn't think DDP could carry Goldberg to a good match. I was wrong. This was a fun match. Uh, Meltzer dug it too. Uh, I would encourage everybody to go check it out. Anything else you want to mention about that match before we talk about the pay-per-view news? No, I mean, I think you covered it. I mean, it was, it was a great match for both guys. 
Uh, I think it elevated Bill in a, in a really, really important way at a very important time because it established that he could go out there and do more than just spear and jackhammer guys. And he really needed, he, he needed that transition to, to, to get to the next level. Let me ask you this. Was there ever any consideration of having DDP win here? I mean, I know no. that Goldberg was on the undefeated streak, but was there no. any, okay. No, no, no consideration. No, none at all. Let's talk about the technical problems. Uh, this show was mistimed, uh, maybe because of the two disco matches, maybe because Lodi was on a pay-per-view. Uh, I get, uh, there's lots of maybes, I guess, but the show is mistimed and it goes long. And a lot of people miss the main event. Meltzer would write Havoc went about three hours and 22 minutes and a time slot originally scheduled for a maximum of two hours and 50 minutes. The decision to go past the schedule three hours was a late decision perhaps decided as late as the day of the show. WCW had planned the show out to go three hours and 15 minutes. And much of the heat has fallen on a company liaison to viewers choice in the cable industry who apparently didn't get the word out of the importance that the show was going longer than its initial scheduling. Because of that, about 25% of the systems around the country cut the show off before its conclusion with different systems, cutting it off at different times. Some systems went down about two hour, 55 minute mark which was just before the finish of Hogan warrior. And some went down at the three hour, five minute mark, which would have been during the ring introductions of Goldberg versus DDP cable companies around the country, including time Warner, New York, and many of the TCI systems, including major markets like LA and San Francisco cut the show off before its conclusion. And the offices were flooded with irate phone calls for the next two days. Many viewers vowing to buy satellite dishes to avoid this happening again. How systems handled the problem varied. Most offered viewers the choice of a Tuesday replay for free or a rebate on the purchase price of $29.95, which varied from $10 in some systems, $20 in others, and the entire purchase price in some. Virtually all callers were said to have taken the rebate rather than the Tuesday replay. The cable industry was said to be as a whole irate. Because this was scripted pro wrestling, not a shoot sport like the UFC, which had similar problems in 94 and 95, which caused untold man hours of listening to irate callers over the next two days, compounded by supposedly charges from competitive wrestling groups that WCW did this on purpose as a ratings ploy for the next day. The cost of that win, and I want to make clear that I'm virtually certain the pay-per-view snafu the previous night wasn't a ratings ploy, but rather a major screw up within WCW even though WCW was desperate to win the ratings, it would be at an estimated more than $2 million equally shared by time Warner in the cable industry. If one would presume that havoc was doing 400,000 buys and then roughly a hundred thousand homes were cut off before the main event. So given these figures and they're all approximations from a WCW standpoint, the show that would gross an estimated 5.15 million would now gross more like 4 million. Eric Bischoff claiming that his conversations with viewers choice to explain the problem the next day saw him confronted with executives who claimed that officials at Titan sports had told him this was all a ratings ploy and Bischoff had Tony Schiavone explain that contrary to what competitors were saying, it was not a ratings ploy and they don't resort to shock value to win the ratings like the competitors because of all the controversy Bischoff rescinded the original plan to give out the result of the raw main event between Austin and Shamrock on the tape show of the first hour of nitro. So a lot to digest here. Meltzer says it was planned to go long. 
but somebody didn't tell somebody. And as a result, chaos, what really happened? He was right. He was right. The, the show, um, was timed. You know, I mean, look, I, I, from what I heard, no, I wasn't there, but a similar situation almost happened at all in for probably different reasons. But when you book your satellite time, you, your, your time, you, you book a specific amount of time and that's what you get. And it's your job as the producer to make sure you get all your shit in and the show goes off according to schedule the challenge that you have sometimes, and you know, it's easy to look back and say, well, you didn't really need the loaded match, or you really didn't need the Chris Jericho, you know, Raven match at the beginning. Cause it really didn't have a storyline behind it, or this could have been shorter. That could have been shorter. The challenge that you have is when guys go in there and take longer than they're supposed to, you got a run sheet. We all know what the each match, how long it's supposed to go, how long each interview is supposed to go. And it's your job as the producer and the director uh, and and the job of the talent to stay within those time frames, and unfortunately, um, especially on pay per views uh, where people feel like they have to get their shit in, sometimes it goes over. And this was one of those cases. You know, it wasn't a ratings ploy. That's fucking ridiculous. It was a nightmare for me personally um, for a long time uh, dealing with it. Um, but it was just a matter of poor communication with the satellite company and a poor job of everybody involved and sticking to their times on the show. That's why it's so important to to learn how to lay out a match and do it within the time frame that you've got to work within, whether it's five minutes or 15 minutes or 18 minutes. Once you get the word as a wrestler that that's your time, um, you can't go over by 30 seconds or a minute or two minutes or four minutes. And sometimes, sometimes guys will go over a lot more than that. You know, we talked about warriors very first interview that was scheduled for about eight minutes. It went about 25 perfect example, you know, um, that shit happens. And unfortunately in this case, it cost cost a lot of money, a lot of embarrassment and a lot of bad, you know, a lot of ill will with, with WCW fans. Well, I mean, it is different because this is on pay-per-view. So it is different than warrior going long. I mean, it is, it's, it's same. It's the same thing. Yeah, it is. It's the same same problem. You know, one costs you a lot of money and one, one doesn't, but it's the same problem. Here's my question though, with warrior out there, you know, you know, okay. Like he's sort of in control. You could cut away and go to commercial and cut it off if you want to. But I mean, that's not a good look. I understand you're in a tough spot there. But to start your main event so late, why didn't you just cut some matches? We thought we had enough time going into it. Well, that's what I'm struggling with. Cause when I said that you guys thought you had the time and nobody communicated it, I thought that was the answer. But then you went on this tangent about how guys went long. But that's how you, but that's how you end up getting into that's how you end up going over. You know, they had to get their match in. They had to get their finish in. We thought we had enough time. We thought we had enough time booked. We thought we were going to be able to get everything in. And because of horseshit communication, as I said, as you pointed out early on, you know, we, we didn't have enough time. I'm not trying to pick here. and I know it sounds like I am, but when you show up to the building that day and you know that you're going to go 
or Hey, based on the way we've got a card laid out, we're going to need more time. Who do you communicate that with and who's responsible for communicating with the cable companies? That would have been probably David Crockett. Mike Weber, I would say David Crockett and Mike Weber would have probably been the two point people on that communication. So when you first, before you even get to that, where you say, okay, we need to tell somebody we need more time. When you see the card and you're told we're going long, I mean, are you thinking, well, goddamn, we can't cut wrath y'all. I mean, we got to have Lodi on the shit too. No, the, your first, your first look, you've got your show laid out. You think that's the, the best show that you can deliver. And, and you want to deliver that show. You, you try to get more time. We're told we had more time. We thought we had the time and we ran out of it. It's really not that hard to figure out. I mean, it's easy to sit back and go, well, why didn't you just do this? Right. Did you really need that wrath? Sure. It's easy. You can be a fucking genius, you know, with 2020 hindsight. Um, there's a lot of things that, you know, can be done differently, um, after the fact, but going into it, we thought we had enough time. We thought we communicated with our satellite company. We thought we were going to be okay. Things got out of control and we ran out of time. How many, after this, how many pay-per-views did you go over? I don't think any, did we? Nope. Or before this was the only one. There's a lot of geniuses before and after. Hey, so let's talk about the next night. It's huge. So even though, you know, we're sort of shitting on what happened here with the overrun Goldberg and page break the all time television record, or at least for cable the next day, doing a 7.18 rating and a 10.2 share. So we're talking 5.367 million homes or approximately 7.782 million viewers. And that even beat the Hogan Goldberg title change, which did like 5 million homes and a 6.91. I mean, I know it wasn't the original plan, but you gotta be over the moon with the fucking rating. Do you know it? No, <laughs> no, not under the circumstances. We weren't No, it was, it was a high price to pay for a great rating. I'm glad you said high price because I gotta ask. If you had to guess, and I know you don't have your calculator in front of you, how much money do you think the overrun cost WCW? I have no idea. I couldn't even guess. Couldn't even guess. It was, you know, couldn't even guess. Number one, I wasn't dealing with it. Um, and number two, it, the pay-per-view business was, and probably still is, a really complicated um, system. You know, you have your local cable systems. They each have their own issues with their local cable customers. Um, they all refunded different amounts. Some of it got charged back to us. Some of it didn't. Um, so that it, I'd just be taking a wild-ass guess. So I, I don't want to do that. Okay, talk to me about this. When it goes over and you realize, oh, shit, we're in a refund situation, do you have a conversation with anybody about Turner? Does anybody say, Eric, what the fuck? Oh, fuck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you just said you weren't dealing with it. So I'm just curious what, no, the- I wasn't, I wasn't dealing with the financial means the aspect of it. I mean, I wasn't taking the phone calls from the local cable companies. Sure. I, you know, I, I didn't work in the finance division, so I wasn't, you know, keeping a tally of how much money was being refunded. That's what I mean when I say I wasn't dealing with it, but I was dealing with it f- from a PR point of view. I was dealing with it with my local 
with, with cable companies, the heads of DirecTV. I was dealing with it with executives at Turner Broadcasting who were getting bombarded with phone calls. So, yeah, I was dealing with it. I just wasn't dealing with the numbers. What's the um, what's the pushback? What's the feedback from Turner when you have to not Ted, but just the organization when that no, it was helped. it was Harvey Schiller was the one that I had to do with the most, and you know Harvey was a you know he's a military guy he 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 wants to know what happened, why did it happen, what are you going to do to make sure it never happens again? Okay, let's move on. I mean, he was very you know Harvey was a very he was a tough guy to work for in many respects, but in some respects I loved it because he was just he was just matter of fact. You know, it's like, okay, it should happen. Tell me how it happened, you know, and tell me how it's never gonna happen again. What are we going to do to make sure this never happens again? But you know, dealing with the PR side of things. I mean, it wasn't like, you know, there were executives at Turner that were calling me all day, every day for the, you know, the next week or two. I didn't really have to answer to anybody other than Harvey. Um so that was the extent of my conversations with him, but dealing with the PR issues, that was tough. You know, Alan Sharp was, you know, front and center on that. And it was tough dealing with, you know, irate fans. There were a lot of people calling into WCW offices that were pissed off and they had a right to be, you know, there were a lot of people that were calling in and, and, you know, threatening never to buy another WCW pay-per-view because they believed it was all a ratings ploy. Um, there were a lot of those issues that we had to, to deal with, but I wasn't dealing with the, the actual cash transactions. Well, it's a good thing that you weren't running a poll either, because in the wrestling observer reader poll, this show gets 22.1% thumbs up from its readers, 60.7% thumbs down and unbelievably 17.2% thumbs in the middle unanimously and it's not even close the worst match is hulk hogan and warrior the best match is goldberg and ddp where would you put this man thumbs up thumbs down thumbs in the middle oh i mean overall thumbs down you know everything considered i think that there was too much going on on the show i think there were a lot of matches that were on the pay-per-view that shouldn't have been um, not a lot, but several, as we've discussed, I think the Ming match and wrath match didn't need to be there. Um, there was just a lot of, there was a lot of, a lot of filler, you know, I, I don't think the, um, uh, the fifth Finley match, uh, necessarily had to happen. Um, we could have given things more time to breathe. I think obviously going over pretty much regardless of how horrible anything else was on the show. You know, the fact, just the mere fact that we went over and we missed our satellite time, um, that would have to put it as a thumbs down all by itself. Well, it's a thumbs up for us for the rest of the month here on 83 weeks. He is at E Bischoff on Twitter. I am at Hey, Hey, it's Conrad and we are out of time. We'll see you next week right here on 83 weeks with Eric Bischoff. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on a sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.